You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. I was lost. It was already dusk. I had been driving for hours and was practically out of petrol. The idea of being stranded on these lonely hills in the dark appalled me, so I was glad to see a signpost and coast down to a garage. When I opened a window to speak to the attendant, the air outside was so cold that I turned up my collar. While he was filling the tank he commented on the weather. Never known such cold for this month. Forecast says we're in for a real bad freeze-up. Most of my life was spent abroad, soldiering, or exploring remote areas. But though I had just come from the tropics, and freeze-ups meant little to me, I was struck by the ominous sound of his words. Anxious to get on, I asked the way to the village I was making for. You'll never find it in the dark. It's right off the beaten track. And those hill roads are dangerous when they're iced up. He seemed to imply that only a fool would drive on under present conditions, which rather annoyed me. So, cutting short his involved directions, I paid him and drove away, ignoring his last warning shout. Look out for that ice! It had got quite dark by now, and I was soon more hopelessly lost than ever. I knew I should have listened to the fellow, but at the same time I wished I had not spoken to him at all. For some unknown reason, his remarks had made me uneasy. They seemed a bad omen for the whole expedition, and I began to regret having embarked on it. That was the opening paragraph of Anna Kavan's Ice, which was originally published in 1967 by Peter Owen Books. The book is Anna Kavan's final and best-known work, and appeared just one year before her death. In the aftermath of a nuclear war, society is rapidly crumbling as a wall of ice threatens to engulf the entire planet. Our unnamed narrator roams through this barren, frozen wasteland in pursuit of a young girl with a halo of hair as bright as spun glass. His designs on her are decidedly sinister. The novel proceeds with the torturous, cyclical quality of an inescapable nightmare in which the reader is cocooned. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this simultaneously bleak and beautiful text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 11 of Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum, I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, great, thanks, Sam. Good to hear it, man. Today we're talking about Ice by Anna Kavan, published in 1967. And in, in some ways, I think, you know, at the time we were recording this, uh, a discussion of this icy novel couldn't be uh, more inappropriate, really. <laughs> it's blazing heat outside. 
But then, in, you know, in some ways, this summer has been one of really severe weather conditions, hasn't it? It's like... Yeah, absolutely. It's been severe heat wave and floods. It does seem like the world is kind of coming apart somehow, so maybe it is, is the right time to be reading this. I mean, whether there's uh, an ecological message in the book, originally it can certainly be read like that, and then, as you say, at this very moment becomes extremely pertinent. How did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Did you enjoy it? I, I did really enjoy it. Yeah, there was some... Um, at the beginning, I was really, really hooked. And I think there's a pace that certainly carries you through, for me anyway. There's this kind of slightly parodic, yeah, aping of, of some kind of like spy thriller that, that really pulls you through. There was points when I felt a bit lost, perhaps, within the book. I was a bit unsure about the ending. But rereading it, making some notes, I've really come... I don't know come alive again slightly for me so yeah overall I, I did enjoy it i was quite mesmerized by the the tone of it actually i love the way that it seems to close you within its world when you're reading it. it's like everything else disappears it sort of cocoons you the evocation of this broken world after some perhaps a nuclear war is is really effective you get this sense of dislocation or that you're you're separated from from everything and and you know the way that world affairs seem to travel through rumors or word of mouth but they're kind of muffled through a snowstorm or sheets of white noise that you you can't quite gather any kind of concrete information i definitely felt this link between the narrator's position in this world where communication is sort of impossible and how the book made me feel but also it's really gorgeous stylistically don't you think yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean i don't think i've ever read anything that completely captures both the logic and the aesthetic of a, of a dream so mm. you can say that dreams have an aesthetic but the yeah exactly as you were saying the everything being half shrouded and, and never quite clear and the way aspects of the narrative just jump from one to another without any explanation but yet as in a dream to the narrator it makes perfect sense and this is something you just have to go along with <laughs> and accept yeah. and and likewise the points of crystalline clarity real beauty in the in the prose and then suddenly this this tumult of very quick rush from from one thing to another yes yeah, uh, yeah stylistically it's absolutely amazing yeah, that's a really good way to put it that sort of crystalline beauty the only thing that is absolutely hard and certain about it is perhaps in its descriptions of of the environment or of this sort of looming wall of ice barren ruined towns that, that could perhaps be anywhere i don't know about you rob i got the sense that at times we might have been in Scandinavia, at times in South America, it's really unclear. No, I agree. I was thinking, yeah, certainly certainly Scandinavia, Eastern Europe. But then, yeah, absolutely. At other points, a few points where it suddenly becomes slightly warmer, very much somewhere, you know, Southern European or, or Latin American. But yeah, likewise, the complete lack of proper nouns uh, yeah. is, again, part of this for me very dreamlike state the details of these places are sometimes rendered very very clearly but we're never given any explanation of where exactly we're meant to be did you find it as sort of unsettling to read as i did I, I, you know the force that's driving this its narrator is violence essentially it's like a really cold unemotional book and it seems to come out of a sort of despair of the world perhaps you know there's no sort of consolation to find in it i didn't find any personally i mean maybe that's where its power comes from but it's uh as much as it kind of shrouds you in 
cocoons you it's quite an unpleasant place to be there's a harshness to it yeah i would i'd completely agree with that and the f- i feel like the fact that you not only are you cocooned within this world but your your vision is is absolutely locked to the vision of this narrator and very very infrequently i think do you peer beyond what he sees and catch a glimpse of what might really be going on the horror of that it's um it's really quite unsettling and and really doesn't let up all the way through you know right through to the end of the book seeing the world through this psychopathic filter is um yeah certainly certainly makes for quite a difficult read sometimes it's pretty relentless isn't it I thought we could say something about uh, Anna Kavan's life. She seemed to have quite a peculiar life. She was born in 1901 in Cannes in France and her parents travelled an awful lot and you know she would remember her childhood as as very lonely and isolated. And I've read v- various different dates about about this event. Um some sources claim that it happened when she was 14, some when she was 10 years old, but her father commits suicide when she's very young. Apparently he jumped from the stern of a, a ship bound for South America. And I think it's had a really strong influence on, on her life as a child. Not least because her mother removed her immediately from a boarding school in America where she was that she was attending and sent her to Lausanne in, in Switzerland. And she seemed to have moved from school to school very, very often as a child and seemed to have a very disrupted school life. When she's 19, she marries an older man, Donald Ferguson, and moves to Burma with him, um, and they have a child. According to Jeremy Reed, um, who wrote this really interesting biography of Anna Kavan, A Stranger on Earth, this Donald Ferguson had, had falsely claimed aristocratic ancestry and, and Reed refers to his sort of lascivious scheming. And Kavan doesn't seem to have had a very pleasant time of it in Burma. She she describes it as having been very isolated and a hatred and contempt of her husband seems to have developed there. And it might be a, a stretch maybe to think of this first husband as a model for the narrator of, of Ice, but the relationship certainly seems to have been a very unhappy one. They, they were quite ill-matched, I think, and the marriage doesn't last for longer than a few years. Yeah, Reed writes that although the marriage ended uh, effectively in 1922, the emotional damage remained for her lifetime, and he says that these residual tr- traumas would resurface in her fiction again and again. Maybe that's something we can we can see in Ice. Did you come across that figure of Donald Ferguson, Rob? Yeah, and I think it's definitely, I think it's absolutely fair to say that that really, you know, if not completely, but certainly informs the two male characters in the book. The time in Burma is fictionalised in another novel of hers, Who Are You? So yeah, I think clearly this had a, a massive effect, as you would expect. I didn't read so much about him other than I think I read at one point that he may have been a lover of Anna Kavan's mother. Did you read that? Is that right? I didn't read yeah. that, no. Now, I may have misread something or uh, it did seem very strange, but then your description of this kind of confidence trickster would certainly make sense that he's managed to sort of wheedle his way in with the family and um, manages to get the mother to, to give the daughter away. It all sounds extremely unpleasant, but perhaps this is actually exactly the kind of man he is. This was a really unhappy time in in her life but interestingly it's in Burma that she also first begins to write and maybe there's something significant there in that her, her writing comes out of a place of 
isolation or despair of sorts. I think we can certainly read something like that in Ice. In the mid-1920s, she, she comes to London and attends the London Central School of Arts and Crafts. Did you know that she was a painter? Have you seen many of her paintings? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen any paintings of hers, but I did read that you know, she was quite highly regarded. I'm using one of her self-portraits for the cover picture of the, this episode. They're quite striking. Certainly these self-portraits have a kind of coldness to them as well, uh, really strong lines. I don't know too much about her sort of reputation as a painter i think she's far more widely regarded as a as a writer at least you're the art student of the two, the two of us Rob. uh it's not exactly my my area but um yeah I've, i certainly find them quite interesting in 1928 she she marries an artist Stuart edmonds and they seem to have had a relatively stable life together i mean during their time together she she works very steadily on her writing and publishes six novels under her original uh, pen name of helen ferguson after which she decides to change change her name completely she takes the name Anna Cavan from one of her characters in a in a formal novel novel i've heard a number of in different interpretations of this changing of her name i mean there are there are scholars who claim that that decision represented a complete elimination of her formal self and that the works published under Helen Ferguson's name and Anna Cavan are completely distinct. You know, that these earlier novels are much more conventional and they give way to a very experimental style after the name change. I listened to a really interesting lecture by Victoria Walker. It's a lecturer at the Freud Museum and she claims that that view this idea of two distinct personalities, two distinct styles, is in part influenced by um, the Welsh writer and acquaintance of, of Cavan's, Rhys Davis, who, who wrote a fictionalised biography of, of her called The Honeysuckle Girl, that kind of mythologises this change of name and personality to a greater degree than we, we really should consider it. And she claims, uh, Victoria Walker this is, that you can't draw the distinction between these early works and the ones under Cavan's name so plainly um, and that the tendencies those experimental tendencies we see are there from the start it's very difficult for me to say not having read any of the works under the name Helen Ferguson this is actually the the first Anna Cavan book that I've read is that the same for you Rob yeah 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 but I was going to say because um, yeah I read I read the same that there is this kind of uh, debate about the lineage but it seems interesting that if she's taken the name and this kind of new persona from the previous work it would suggest that she sees some value and takes something from that, that previous body because otherwise you would assume that she, she would have a, a pen name that had absolutely nothing to do with it. So there is quite an obvious link. Equally, I'm, I'm not very well placed to, to say one way or the other. Well, you could say also that that could represent a kind of fictionalisation of her identity somehow. That, that's certainly the, the take that Jeremy Reed has in his biography mm. i'll just read what he says about it he writes as part of her desire in later life systematically to eliminate the facts of her past annika van destroyed all the diaries she continued to keep about her troubled life and relationships the attempt to manipulate time was also a prominent characteristic of annas even to the point like jean genet of never admitting to a birth date people who live in and write directly out of their imagination are often reluctant to reveal biographical details usually because their lives involve the need to continuously recreate reality through fiction, a process that in turn leaves them feeling inalienably remote from the concrete facts of their past. 
Helen Ferguson and Anna Kavan are two distinct people, and while they shared the same genes, one could argue that the cellular modifications brought about by prolonged heroin use succeeded over a period of time in altering Anna Kavan biologically into her creation. You can probably tell just from that little passage that this is a rather uh, unorthodox biography and perhaps one that is uh, that tends towards that um, mythologizing of, of her character but i think it's it's an interesting take and one that has been quite persistent throughout you know later considerations of of anna Kavan and her work does that strike you as pure myth making rob um yeah it's hard it's very hard to know isn't it i mean the pictures that you can see the way that she she dyes her hair this ice white which is very interesting in the context of of the novels we'll discuss later that there is definitely this this physical change but yeah to the extent that she becomes an entirely different person it's hard to say whether this is her her desire or whether she becomes the person that she perhaps always felt she was and only to others appears to be a different person i think the very fact that that happens i think we have to take it into account when reading it and i think it makes the reading what for me personally what angle to take whilst reading this which i think is a decision as a reader you do have to take it shaped the the direction that i came to the book when I came back to it for a second time and, and started to unpack it in terms of the, the, the female character who in the book is, is, you know, very frail and fragile and referred to as the girl constantly. It made me feel like actually this isn't how Anna Kavan sees herself because I can't imagine how you could simultaneously be the kind of person that would reinvent yourself to greater or lesser degree to have that amount of power or control to, to build an entire personality and to build something, someone who is dependent and, um, you know, fit into a very masculine idea of kind of this uh, needy and uh, not very powerful female. And that really helped me understand the book or, or come to my own understanding of the book. I was struck in just in reading the parts of this biography that it, she doesn't in any way come across as, as someone that's only fragile i mean she certainly had moments of fragility you know she suffered with severe depression throughout her life but you know even in her dealings with with friends and with her publisher she's very she's a very strong figure quite adamant about her artistic intentions and i didn't really see her character wise mirrored in the figure of the girl here at all maybe maybe this figure of the girl is is something more like an an image or an archetype than projection of herself in 1935 she gives birth to a child that, that dies shortly afterwards and together with Edmunds very quickly after that they adopt a baby and it's around this time that she attempts suicide and uh, spends time in a psychiatric clinic in Switzerland and uh, her marriage with Edmunds also breaks down at that at that point during the the second world war her first son that she had with Ferguson Brian is, is killed in action and she actually spends time working with soldiers coming back from the front with various neuroses I mean for, for a sort of detailed account of this time and her later relationship with the psychiatrist and writer Dr. Carl Theodore Blute I really recommend listening to that lecture by Victoria Walker at the 
Freud Museum. Did you hear it at all, Rob? No, I didn't. I did read a bit about this time, and it sounds really, really interesting. Am I right in thinking that she be, she trains as a as a psychiatrist or as a as a? I don't know that she trains formally. Uh, she works with the men coming back from Second World War. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. This figure of Carl Theodore Blute seems to have been a very important one for her. I think they had a quite a close relationship, um, much closer than the the average. A doctor-patient relationship and one that goes beyond those formalities. I think they have a artistic relationship and also Blute, according to Reed, um, was able to supply Anna Kavan with regular um, regular amounts of heroin from a kind of reliable source. Um, so there seems to be a slight dependence on, on him in terms of her addiction as well. For the rest of her life, she'll continue to struggle with heroin addiction and uh, and depression and undergoes treatment at various psychiat- psychiatric institutions but also continues to, to publish extensively her time in these various institutions seems to have impacted her, her artistic production really significantly a collection of stories asylum piece which which presents lots of these doctor-patient relationships and also ex- experiments with various narrators experiencing neuroses and delusions and so on. So it's quite an interesting text. I I read that one less assiduously. It has to be said than than Ice, but it, I think it's another important publication of hers. She lives at the end of her life in London and and dies in 1968, just one year after the publication of uh, Ice which to this day I think is her most successful and and popular novel. I'll just read again what Jeremy Reed has to say about her, her death. He says, The police were called to Hillsley Road to break down the door of Anna's flat. They found her fully dressed, sprawled across the bed, a syringe in her arm, and her head resting on the lacquered box in which she stored her heroin. She had been dead for 24 hours. She had died private and elegant to the last, fully made up, preparing a shot true to her image of herself and her inner vision right to the end. And apparently um, Scotland Yard's drug squad in their search of Cavan's flat found enough stockpiled heroin to kill the whole street, or so they said. Um, so it's, it seems to have been a really big part of her life, this dependence on, on heroin. And that might be something we can think about when we talk about the book itself. There are various possible interpretations. Is this a, as a depiction or metaphor for, for addiction, perhaps? I guess it could be worth noting the extent to which she travelled throughout her life, that she's, even even during the Second World War, somehow unhampered by the by the war around her, she still manages to travel. Uh, and I think the, the way the narrator of, of this book moves from place to place, really, is written, and, and the way he, he kind of absorbs the the new places that he arrives i think is definitely written from the perspective of someone who has traveled she started wandering aimlessly round the room stopped by the window pulled the curtains aside then cried out in amazement instead of the darkness she faced a stupendous sky conflagration an incredible glacial dream scene. Cold coruscations of rainbow fire pulsed overhead, shot through by shafts of pure incandescence thrown out by the mountains of solid ice towering all round. Closer, the trees round the house sheathed in ice, dripped and sparkled with weird prismatic jewels reflecting the vivid changing cascades above. 
Instead of the familiar night sky, the aurora borealis formed a blazing, vibrating roof of intense cold and colour, beneath which the earth was trapped with all its inhabitants, walled in by those impassable glittering ice cliffs. The world had become an arctic prison, from which no escape was possible. All its creatures trapped as securely as were the trees, already lifeless in their deadly resplendent armour. Despairingly, she looked all round. She was completely encircled by the tremendous ice walls, which were made fluid by explosions of blinding light, so that they moved and changed with a continuous liquid motion, advancing in torrents of ice, avalanches as big as oceans, flooding everywhere over the doomed world. Wherever she looked, she saw the same fearful encirclement, soaring battlements of ice, an overhanging ring of frigid, fiery, colossal waves about to collapse upon her. Frozen by the deathly cold emanating from the ice, dazzled by the blaze of crystalline ice light, she felt herself becoming part of the polar vision, her structure becoming one with the structure of ice and snow. As her fate, she accepted the world of ice, shining, shimmering, dead. She resigned herself to the triumph of glaciers and the death of her world. The book takes place in a sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland and we, we hear of a wall of ice that's threatening to engulf the, the whole world. This world is presented through the eyes of a very self-satisfied male narrator who roams this, this wasteland in search of a girl with a childlike body and hair as bright as spun glass who's yeah, just always referred to as the girl. Our narrator gives us the impression that he's been, at times, perhaps a person of some importance on the on the world stage although there's very little evidence for this yeah he also tells us that he's been a, a researcher some sort of zoological researcher uh, working on injuries which is a type of lemur native to madagascar the premise is very very straightforward i think he, he pursues the girl across various continents and all the world all the while this great wall of ice is devouring the world and there's a constant threat of the impending uh, uninhabitability of the of the whole world and it kind of lends this pursuit almost a, a sort of meaninglessness or a, a vacuity perhaps we sense that even if he he tracks down the girl what time they have together won't be very long anyway there's also another male figure in the book uh, the warden with whom our narrator has to compete for possession of the girl Though at times he appears to be something like the mirror image of the narrator or, or even his nemesis at times. The, the whole novel is presented in quite repetitive episodic form which seems almost to reset itself from, from chapter to chapter and it kind of colours everything with the mood of an inescapable nightmare or cycle of horrible dreams. The cyclical nature of the book, for me, definitely when I was reading it, as you read this, this first section driving through the, the cold night. Certainly it sets the, the whole tone for the book. I think the actual first word of the book is, or the first three words of the book was, I was lost. And I think you never, you never, <laughs> the narrator never finds themselves, and I don't think as a reader you necessarily do either. But yeah, this, this initial moment as he's driving through the cold, looking, looking for the girl to find her with, in this point, 
and your husband, the inability to communicate and the foiled attempt at, at rescue from something that's never really named is, is this cycle constantly that goes through the book. And I guess, yeah, we can talk later about whether this is you know, psychological, whether it's uh, pathological, whether this is description of the kind of cyclical nature of addiction, uh, whether it's all of those things, I don't know. The mood of this opening passage for me is really amazing and I was, I was gripped by it straight away and there's the, a moment where the narrator's talking about driving driving through this uh, the night he says uh, the sky was black blacker untended hedges towering against it and when the headlights occasionally showed roadside buildings these two were black and i like this um i mean i think the, the as a metaphor for for the way we come across things or the way things are revealed to us in the book this kind of momentary glimpse in the headlights is quite a good one but the way it's black on black on black uh Certainly there's a very black mood to it, but also this attempt to pick out details in tiny gradations of, of colour or um, tiny gradations of... Yeah, the difference between these these uh, various cycles is something, I don't know if you would agree with that, I felt it really just came up again and again and again. You could quite easily forget exactly where you were and where, where the narrator had found himself. It's another thing that seems to really add to the purposelessness of this pursuit. Maybe we could think of it as sort of variations on a theme. The essential narrative of each episode remains pretty much the same with, with maybe incidental details, the, the location or the particular form in which we, we meet the warden or, or how the narrator sees himself in that particular chapter are the things that, that change. But you're right about that sort of granularity, perhaps, the, the way that you have to, I don't know, you have to almost work to distinguish for yourself any particular stage in an overall narrative that you might be encountering. It switches between the the total of the narrator the the total immersion and total acceptance of this repetition that he can't see beyond the the particular cycle that he's in and can't see that he's doing it again and again and then these and these strange flashes of clarity there's one at the very beginning before he's even left what's i assume to be england but perhaps actually could be anywhere um when he talks about yeah suddenly it seemed neither sensible nor even sane to continue the search based solely on vague surmise but yet this is forgotten almost instantly and it's, it's never quite brought up again and and you know this is absolutely valid that it's certainly not sensible or sane the way that you're pulled through it with or by his unblinking acceptance of each new of each new thing i don't know it's I've, i'm really trying very hard <laughs> not to project too much biographical things on it especially about the addiction but it it does feel to me something like the repetition of an addict the complete acceptance of of a plight of you know, everything else is obliterated by a particular need only to realizing that you're doing the same thing again and again and again without getting any closer to the goal that simultaneous sense of the narrator has of pursuing some object but also being hunted down by this this greater force you know it's quite compelling as a as a possible metaphor for for addiction i think that's certainly jeremy reed's reading of this he reads it quite directly as a, a book about heroin whiteout i don't know maybe that plays quite interestingly with the idea of it being almost like a, a nightmare that repetitive structure that cyclical uh, way that the book presents itself Kavan quite explicitly 
talks about it in those terms in a in a letter to her publisher. I'll read what she says in a moment, but I I found that very compelling as a as a as a reading for it, Rob. There is a sort of main narrative that you can follow, but often seems to be little consequence to the actions within it, you know, particularly concerning the girl who seems to exist almost solely to be idealized and then abused and 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 very particularly idealized most in death it seems like she attains a form of perfection for the narrator in death when she when her neck is broken or she's bleeding out or something it also seems that she might be a figment of the narrator's imagination in the way that she seems to just appear at random and she she's actually in any place that that he he travels to uh, even though he has no way of knowing where she has actually gone in that sense it felt to me like she might not be a, a single person but but something more like an archetype and then along with the the strangeness of these random appearances there's a peculiar narrative device i thought rob in which at moments the story will simply be ruptured or intruded upon by an entirely different narrative that that seems to be perhaps a delusion or a hallucination or it could be flashbacks or something there's a moment when the narrator talks about a battle in which she's taken part that seems to kind of come out of nowhere and have no consequence afterwards do you remember that yeah 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 yeah, absolutely because there's these moments i mean even very early on there's these moments that are quite obviously visionary where the narrator sees the girl is suspended gleaming white in the in the ice and then we return to the narrative and seamlessly this just goes through completely accepted um but at that point yeah it's not only is it visionary but we jump in time and space uh that we seem to go to this kind of like medieval regression of some sort it's very strange and very unsettling the way that that is just completely seamless in in the way that we're being told what's going on it might just come in the middle of a paragraph that you're reading uh, which has previously been about you know the pursuit of this girl or traveling from one continent continent to another and you're suddenly in a completely different world you know those little sub sub narratives are sort of close enough to the to the main narrative for the for the lines to blur between them i found that had a really particular effect of uh, leading me to question even more the the primary reality that is presented and the reliability of the narrator presenting it he quite often says things like i was beginning to doubt my reality or uh, yeah, there's a quotation here uh, reality had always been something of an unknown quantity for me at times this could be disturbing and i noticed also that the word confusion comes up over and over again throughout the novel i, I felt like kevan seems to be overtly pushing us as readers to question whether or not we should accept even the most basic premises presented to, to us by that by that narrator but that's one of the things that made the book so interesting for me and and uh added to this sort of dreamlike quality i read that the the publisher peter owen had initially complained about a lack of realism and characterization within the text and kavan replied to the publisher i'll just quote a little bit here um she says i wish i knew how to make the book more acceptable when i started writing i saw the story as one of those recurring dreams hence the repetitive voyages, etc., which at times becomes a nightmare. This dreamlike atmosphere is the essence of the whole concept. Without the book, it would be meaningless. In saying that the pursuit is too endless and too drifting, you seem to be objecting to the book as a whole, since the pursuit is the book. The girl's importance as a victim should be plain enough to justify the pursuing. I mean that peculiar attraction between victim and victimizer. 
drawing two opposing poles together. I feel direct characterization would be out of place here and would upset the interpersonal balance between the characters. Maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, Rob, but I remember you, you, did, you said to me that the book's ending left you a little bit cold, but maybe this is precisely the, the point. The two figures here, we have the, the hunter and the, the hunted here, are not characters at all, but perhaps just some vision of a ongoing violent masculine force or something. I don't know. No, I'd absolutely, I completely, completely agree with you, definitely. I remember, yeah, when I said that, uh, immediately after the book I felt slightly deflated I think by the ending and um, coming back to it and making these notes rereading things I think actually the book somehow weirdly benefits from reading things outside of this immersion which you know you've said from the beginning and I think it's absolutely true this is the, the way it totally envelops you but I think the book does also really benefit from a reading outside of that because when you start to pick these bits you know I, I found it even more horrific the 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 points of violence which are somehow subsumed within the story when they're taken on their own you realize quite how horrific they are and also you begin really really to question absolutely everything about you know that there's not there's not a narrative that's happening punctuated by fantasy that really we're just going through through layers of fantasy in rereading i was quite interested the like a comparison with kafka seems to come up occasionally in some of the sort of secondary bits and pieces i was reading brian aldis famously referred to her as uh, kafka's sister but i was i thought it was really interesting because whilst i feel like with with something like the trial we can share the narrator's you know confusion and frustration and and there's a certain almost camaraderie in in this joint feeling here the ease that the narrator moves through each of these serendipitous events and and the horror of of the kind of callousness of his reaction to certain things really leaves us stranded i think and f i think this was part of my reaction to the ending was the fact that that doesn't let up and it's never there's no resolution to it is really important i think and and i hadn't read the the quote that uh, anna kavan writes to peter owen but it certainly backs up that reading i think that this is really what she's what she's guessing at but it's you know if you're embodied in this this is very stark very violent mindset from first page to last and and written that kind of dawns on you as the book goes on it's a very difficult place to be i think <laughs> pitch black mass of rock loomed ahead, a hill, a mountain, an unlighted fortress, buttressed by regiments of black firs. Her weak hands were shaking too much to manipulate a door, but the forces of doom dragged her inside. Stretched out on her bed, she could feel the hostile alien freezing dark pressed to the wall like the ear of a listening enemy. In utter silence and solitude, she lay watching the mirror, waiting for her fate to arrive. It would not be long now. She knew that something fearful was going to happen in the soundproof room, where nobody could come to her rescue. The room was antagonistic, as it always had been. She was aware of the walls refusing protection, of the frigid hostility in the air. There was nothing she could do. No one to whom she could appeal, abandoned, helpless. She could only wait for the end.
think it's interesting how the the outer world, this frozen world, maybe reflects that sort of frigid, violent consciousness as well. You know, there's no emotion within this book. You know, we've talked about this pursuit and it seems to be driven by a kind of desire, perhaps, but it's not an emotional desire at all, is it? It's like some kind of machine-like desire. And maybe even desire is too strong a word. It's something more like a, a mission or like a programmed uh, robotic objective that just has to be accomplished. It's a sort of inert violence, you know, which is manifested really hideously in, in, in those sort of multiple cold, abusive sex scenes in the in the book. And yeah, you're, you're right. You can almost be pressured into the, the logic of this pathological narrator, not quite to see how horrific those those moments are. I think that's... Yeah, that's right. In terms of the, the way that the landscape and the, the effects of the war mirror or perhaps a manifestation of this mental breakdown or this, uh, this kind of like pathological desire, this um, section where it says the, the... In fact, this is the moment where the narrator leaves the boat for the first time and it's almost really the first true version of the, of the cycle that then continues through the book. And his first thoughts about the place, it says, the devastation was even greater than it had seen from the boat. Not a building intact, wreckage heaped in blank spaces where houses had been. And I found this idea of um, the blank spaces. That description, to me, suggested as much a kind of like mental blank as the physical destruction. And it seems constantly, I mean, obviously the narrative certainly doesn't follow traditional forms and neither does the description, the way that we can jump from place to place and the, even the internal logic of buildings doesn't necessarily make sense. And you very much feel that we're, we're seeing things through a haze or through um, some kind of very strange filter. It, it Then I think, for me anyway, exactly as you said, you know, the beginning of questioning everything you're being told, but even the uh, the idea of this encroaching ice and the, the kind of apocalypse itself, how much this is the manifestation of the, the mood or the mental state of the narrator, how much of this is this really happening you know is this a manifestation of extreme paranoia or is it actually actually happening at the moment when they arrive him and the girl in perhaps the version of this cycle which is most resolved where he does seemingly achieve his aim forcibly removes the the girl and again like a, even even the supposed rescuing feels very abusive but they make it to warmer climate and he says how everyone there's a government edict banning people from talking about the state of world events and the encroaching cold and this feels like you know the perfect example of the extreme paranoia of saying you know why doesn't everyone see what i see well it's because there's some forces that are stopping them controlling mm -hmm. them from seeing it and yeah so you, you really begin to wonder to what extent any of it you know the ice the war is true i don't know if that's too far or whether uh... no not i really don't think it is at all you know i was really interested in the way that the inner and outer world seemed to sort of interpenetrate i was quite interested actually that to find that when this book was in ma manuscript it was known as the the cold world and then later the ice world and it reminded me and various critics have, have picked up on this as well of jg ballard's early science fiction uh, novels you know the drowned world and the burning world and the crystal world have you read any of those by the way Rob? Yeah, I've read The Drowned World. Yeah, that's the one I've read, uh, just as kind of mesmerising for me. I, I yeah. absolutely loved that book. But there's an idea in that book that the tropical heat and the re-emergence of these Triassic life forms and plants and huge iguanas and so on have urged human consciousness back into a primeval state. There's a point in, in that novel, I wish I 
had a quotation of it here, but where Karen's the, the main character, I think he's standing at the edge of the shore and he, he feels his, his being sort of mingling with the landscape somehow and, and almost interpenetrating in this way. Jeremy Reed picks up on the 1960s experimentation with drugs and so on in this period and he talks about it this way. He says, together with J.G. Ballard, she was part of a decade in which inner space and the author's biochemistry, often altered by drugs, became the new dimension for innovative fiction. The idea of a clear distinction between inner and outer realities was dissolved as drugs such as LSD opened out consciousness into hallucinated states that questioned all received notions of reality and goes on to say that ice was metaphorically Kavan's heroin whiteout. Her acknowledgement that her case was terminal and her increased quotient of the drug starting to grow unmanageable, that that landscape reflected the, the big freeze in her veins. But I think as interesting as that reading is, something that you were saying about the narrator's coldness or pathology being kind of reflected outwardly is just as, as compelling a, a reading, I think. And and even the idea that there's, there is no concrete reality to the world being described there was something that occurred to me over and over again reading it, particularly in terms of the idea of abuse, maybe. This could be a kind of metaphor for an ab- just an abusive relationship, perhaps, this feeling of inescapable abusive relationship. I don't know if that strikes any chords with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think definitely there's a point where the narrator even says, midway through the book, he says, the, the unreality of the outer world appeared to be an extension of my own disturbed state of mind. So it certainly seems like there's, obviously there is this unreality, but the, the kind of thing that goes unsaid, I guess in lots of, you know, there's something very compelling about 60s, 70s, well, earlier than that and later than that, but um, this this idea that, uh, you know, the the world as we see it isn't necessarily set and fixed and and there's the potential for all this it's something that we'll be familiar with uh and it's a very you know considered very nice (laughs) but the flip side of that is that if that's the case then who gets to decide how things get set however temporarily or who get you know and that's i think what's going on here for me maybe the the coldness of the ice represents if it's to represent anything even vaguely is is the power struggle that goes on and whether that's the power struggle of an individual and addiction or and i think for me far more important in this is is the power struggle between individuals that the the male narrator here imposes his reality onto this female character to the point where we're really unsure whether she exists and even describes her in the book just after this section that you were talking about earlier where we kind of suddenly go back to this feudal pitched battle throughout the town and then this other very strange seeming fantasy scene where he stumbles across a cottage in the forest and sees the locals talking about throwing the girl into the lake to an to appease a dragon mm, is that right that's right yeah um and then it goes straight away into another fantasy scene where this in isn't just being talked about but it's happening and he attempts to stop it but then says this which i'll just quote um says big tears fall from her eyes like icicles like diamonds but i was unmoved they did not seem like real tears she had herself did not seem quite real she was pale and transparent the victim i used for my own enjoyment in dreams and it seems this again seems like one of these throughout the book there's these sudden points of of absolute clarity which are very very disturbing where the 
veil is lifted for a second, perhaps, when you maybe get a glimpse into, um, you know, what's psychologically at least perhaps really going on. This question about who who gets to impose reality and, and the kind of the level of abuse that is inherent in that question, potential for abuse that's inherent in that question, uh, for me was was as important, if not more important, than the addiction, which I think absolutely shapes the aesthetics and um, the, the visionary quality of the book. I think that narrative control and control of the girl and, and to an extent the complete control of our interpretation of events, the reality that, that we're presented with is really crucial to the book. And I think we are manipulated by this narrator just as much. I was also really interested in terms of, you know, these controlling... Uh, abusive relationships of how many grotesque depictions of domesticity we have Mm. in the book these sort of various little couplings that we see where the girl might be might be a prisoner or might be living in a kind of deteriorated domesticity in a in a little house in, in at the end of some barren town and particularly one one image that one sort of motif that that kept coming back you know which is an, a, a a really curious one i think in in the way that we are as readers almost locked into the room with the narrator we get that motif coming back again this this image of a door being locked shut before a scene of uh, extreme sexual violence and it, it seemed to me i don't know if you felt the same rob but that image was was perhaps even more powerful than the very lurid descriptions of the act of sexual violence of the various deaths of this of this figure because we're aware of the superior strength of that narrator compared with the girl but the the act of closing the door of locking it shut seems like a, a detail from very much from the real world that, that maybe doesn't belong in this fantastical vision this dystopian vision it seems like a very it seems like something that any victim of a relationship like this may have may have experienced it gives the character of this abuse a sort of inevit- inevitability and and sort of cements her powerlessness so towards the end of the book there's sections where it's the narrator locked in with the girl but earlier in the more sort of fantastic these these images of being in um, a castle with the warden the times that he's also then in the room with the warden and the girl and we're almost forced voyeuristically to watch this through his eyes this strange ability that he has to be able to see exactly what's going on and it actually yeah it starts it starts much earlier in the book when he wants to save her from this this husband and he can give extremely detailed descriptions of all the horrors that she suffers at his hands and then descriptions of this awful abuse that she suffers from the warden that of course makes us question quite how separate (laughs) these characters really are and that's something that's then explicitly brought out in the text the claustrophobia of being in the room yeah i think as you say being being locked in with the narrator is is a really great way of explaining it because in in more ways than one you're absolutely locked in and it's really unsettling you know although there might be the semblance of something like remorse towards the end of the novel in the narrator for the way he's treated this girl he sort of reasons to himself at various points throughout the the novel about the sort of inevitability of the the girl's victimhood he says victimization in childhood had made her accept the fate of a victim 
and whatever I did or did not do, the fate would ultimately achieve itself. I don't know, I think we can see in that formulation something of how that repetitive narrative comes round and round again, you know, that not just in the sense of a dream, but in the sense of a sort of state of uh, relationships between men and women, that there's something inescapable about that cycle. Those elements where the narrator talks about the the inevitability of her victimhood and says fear was the climate she lived in things like this that i found myself asking exactly how he knows this <laughs> but um but that uh, that was definitely forefront in my mind when we were talking about the abuse that just comes with uh, the control of someone else's story i suppose actually when we do hear the girl speak it doesn't really sit with this completely anyway with this victim i mean certainly she feels abused but there's a certain amount of reaction against the man that the narrator that he seems confused by because he sees this uh, figure of the warden as the abuser and he's the person to come and to come and help her even though occasionally he admits to himself and us that actually he quite enjoys at least the idea of hurting her yeah in fact yeah again after this um this kind of scene of medieval ransacking and he comes across the corpse of the girl um, which does seem to happen quite a few times that he imagines her death and it talks about how horrific this broken body is but then it says i alone should have done the breaking with tender love the thing that lies at the very heart of abusive relationship the idea that you can love someone so much that you could hurt them and even kill them these these moments where the narrator sort of reveals himself slightly There are a lot of points, especially towards the end, where it becomes more and more apparent. The narrator and the warden aren't necessarily different people. And there's this, this section where he says, In an indescribable way, our looks tangled together. I seem to be looking at my own reflection. Suddenly I was entangled in utmost confusion, not sure which of us was which. We were like halves of one being, joined in some mysterious symbiosis. I fought to retain my identity, but all my efforts failed to keep us apart. I continually found that I was not myself, but him. At one moment, I actually seemed to be wearing his clothes. It made me think, perhaps not the most highbrow of references, but actually I think maybe in terms of politics, quite re- I don't know, maybe quite a good one was this, uh, like something like Fight Club. The the idea that uh, you, know, you would have this projection of another person to be able to do certain things. And I think the way that uh, that book and the film have been taken up by uh, some quite disturbing right-wing incel movements things like that really oh, i didn't know yeah that. i think i think this idea of a it's kind of like nerdy dweeby kind of guy who actually secretly is brad pitt i think that quite appeals yeah. to certain people and also but also the um you know the the secret club and the the things unknown that this is the flip side or perhaps the truth of that that perhaps what's being suggested here is that a projection onto another person allows quite awful unspeakable things to happen i think there's something in that also to do with the vicarious nature of reading as well mm. like you were saying that kind of apes something like spy thrillers or uh, adventure novels in the way that the narrator presents himself where well, he's he's the sort of self-proclaimed swashbuckling hero <laughs> and nearly everything that he plans whether it's through 
brute force you know if he has a fight he sort of wins quite triumphantly and he's usually able to to trick people with the use of his his wiles and then expresses sort of extreme satisfaction all the time you know phrases like uh, i was very pleased with myself and my <laughs> achievement come around again and again but then i suppose if you pick apart these sort of traditional pulp stories or typical hero of adventure stories it it can become simply a problem of perspective when the hero is chosen for a particular tale he's able to act with impunity uh, to to kill and abuse others without suffering any of the consequences that one might in, in reality but then Kavan pushes this into I don't know the regions of the grotesque perhaps by bringing in this this element of sexual abuse there's a section right towards the end of the book where the narrator becomes a mercenary in in the war that seems to have spread across the whole world by that point it's a point where he says uh, it says there was an emotional blockage our machine guns indiscriminately cut down rioters and harmless pedestrians i had no feeling about it and noticed the same indifference in everyone else and the fact that this comes out of part of the novel which seems to ape the kind of spy thriller gives it this added shock because you know, if you think of like a, a James Bond character, you can imagine him having to make some underhand deal with the with the baddies for the greater good, but certainly not unfeelingly machine gunned down rioters and harmless pedestrians. But I think this is you know, this is Kavan saying there's no good war. You know, this this kind of violence does it's very, very difficult to justify. And I'm sure this must have been shaped by, you know, what she was seen with these these men returning from the Second World War. But also I was really taken by something I read and I should have noted down exactly where it came from. But it was talking about ice as a very sort of almost ham-fisted metaphor for the Cold War being you know, so obviously this kind of freezing of relations. And I don't think it was claiming that this was the message of, uh, you know, or the overall metaphor that's working. And I wouldn't want to claim that either. But I do think that there's definitely something about the way that the violence operates at all these different strata, that it operates at the global level through this war and the paranoia and the fear that seems to permeate the society. Uh, but then this is equally reflected in the violence, again, that is that happens between the, the narrator and, and the girl. And when I read that, it, it, I couldn't not read the book with that as one of my key kind of ways into it. It seemed to me so, so important. And the, the bit you just read from the letter to Peter Owen, I think really interesting in that context. I almost feel like while this book could have been embarked upon with the, the Cold War in mind, the reasons for how the world has ended up in this state are are skimmed over quite quite quickly mm. within the book, aren't they? We're, we're yeah. not driven really as readers to, to think about how humanity has destroyed the planet to such a degree that it has ended up this way uh, it's almost like that might have been an, an original idea but it was very quickly hijacked by by something much more artistic by not tying it into very specific politics it allows Kavan to talk simultaneously about all these different types of violence without needing to focus on on one or another and the way that everything remains very very shrouded and perhaps not even perhaps only in the mind of the narrator i think for me maybe reinforces the the different levels that this this kind of violence works the cold war as a as an atmosphere something that permeates how people go about their everyday lives rather than the the very sort of like geopolitical specifics <laughs> Thank you.
I saw the girl. Her picture was always with me, in my wallet and in my head. Now her image appeared in the open wherever I looked. Her white lost face was everywhere with its two large eyes. Her albino paleness flared like a torch beneath the malignant clouds, drew my eyes like a magnet. She was a shimmer among the ruins, her hair a glittering in the dark day. Her wide eyes of a wronged and terrified child accused me from the black holes of smashed windows. Like a perverted child she ran past, soliciting me with big eyes, tempting me with the pleasure of watching her pain, elaborating the worst imaginings of my desire. The ghostly gleam of her face lured me into the shadows. Her hair was a cloud of light, but as I came near her, she turned and fled, the silver shifting suddenly on her shoulders, a waterfall glinting in the moonlight. Where do you think this book sort of stands in relation to other post-apocalyptic or dystopian books? For me, it seems to stand very much outside of that that tradition. I kept thinking about this, um, and again, I, sh- I should have looked it up probably, but I think there's a David Foster Wallace a quote from Infinite Jest where he talks about the way that addicts see different things and says, you know, something like where a where a normal person will see someone they like on the on the street and imagine a, a fleeting embrace or whatever, uh, that an addict will imagine going home with them, getting married this <laughs> this entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it seems far more the imaginings of a completely paranoid, extremely violent mind rather than necessarily a wider imagining of, of the society and how it would cope under the under the stress of apocalypse. For me, I kept thinking about Lolita. I, I felt there was like a massive affinity with a book like Lolita. Yeah, I think it's a really nice comparison. I would say that they operate in different ways, these narrators. You mm. know, Humbert Humbert essentially is is a kind of seducer. Yeah. He has a sort of linguistic charm mm. that this narrator doesn't have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this narrator is, you know, he operates p- perhaps more with brute force and is is perhaps slightly more transparent than someone like Humbert Humbert. But the intention is is similar right? it was it was just this the the kind of unreliability of the narrator and the way that the the true horror of the situation is is revealed to you slowly but yeah i think you're absolutely right that there's um in in lolita you're you're seduced somehow into into seeing things through his eyes whereas here we're uh, almost confused you know we're having to to sift through the the fragments of this extremely unreliable narration the points where it does become apparent to us what's going on are far less vague it's far clearer but equally i found this somehow bleaker there was one thing that in this book and i don't know if it's uh something that you found as strange as i did but this this section right towards the end and he has this interaction with like an alien being he says um so yeah that there was a, a a message to be received from another world and it becomes almost very ballardian type science fiction and it says you know he he told me about the hallucination of space-time and the joining of past and future so that either could be present. He said he would take me to his world if I wanted to go. He and others like him had seen the end of our planet, the end of the human race. The race was dying, the collective death wish, the fatal impulse to self-destruction. 
though perhaps human life might survive. The life here was over, but life was continuing expanding in a different place. We could be incorporated into this wider life if we chose. You know, this, this thing that's being offered is this kind of like strange, slightly woolly, sort of philosophical, almost Buddhist idea of, of joining together in some harmonic uh, collection of, of some vital force. Or a kind of exculpation, you know. Yeah, and but then it said uh, he had access to, to, to superior knowledge, to some ultimate truth. He was offering me the freedom of his privileged world, a world my inmost self longed to know. I felt the excitement of the unimaginable experience. From the doomed dying world man had ruined, I seemed to catch sight of this other one, new, infinitely alive and of boundless potential. And it goes on to say, for a second I believed myself capable of existing on a higher level in that wonderful world, but saw how far it was beyond my powers when I thought of the girl, the warden, the spreading ice, the fighting and killing. That exact passage was how I sort of came to terms with the ending. It felt like there's this, this point where whatever exactly that is that's going on there, whether this is again some like completely unrealistic fantasy of a, of a perfect world, coming out of this you know, drug-addled mind it's still rejected and goes back to this this coldness of a, of a world shaped by violence and i thought it was really noticeable that this scene happens pace really picks up the narrator takes the girl off as discussed already to this kind of like more tropical region she seems incredibly happy and, and he loses his desire for her because really as we very clear the desire is never really for her it seems to be to possess her in a way that a fully fleshed out person can't be possessed and so he leaves then has this very strange vision and then he goes back to find her and the point where he goes back to find her that tropical region has been completely you know taken over by the ice and for me reading it it was really difficult because she seems you know he goes back and she tells him as she has throughout the book that she hates him and she doesn't explicitly accuse him of abuse, but he's forced to sort of look at himself a bit and, and says even that uh, I discovered a new pleasure in tenderness. I wondered why I'd waited so long to be kind to her and that they drive off into the, you know, into the sunset almost and it's all resolved. But reading this a second time and reading it, it felt like this return to the cold world and the fact that the, the warmth of this place that they were, perhaps really none of this is happening or the cold is somehow this this atmosphere or this realization of violence and this he's he's rejected this vision and opted for instead this this fantasy world that he controls and that really once again we're in the in the full grip of this unreliable narration a fantasy world that you know as we learn from the very last line to which he can put an end at any moment mm. uh, if he chooses yeah he even has complete control of the termination of the narrative as well but did he find it completely false this realization of, of his cruelty did it seem like an, a, yet another layer to the to the fantasy yeah kind of i mean i think you know i could almost believe that there's a realization or you know a certain coming to terms with actions but on the on the second reading reading them outside of the narrative the the abuse is just is so so horrific it seemed like a very strange narrative twist to all of a sudden have this this resolution <laughs> so yeah i to come to terms with it myself i had to believe that we had just plunged straight back into into one of these cycles i thought it was really interesting that you you brought up lolita earlier mm. because in in a way a very similar thing happens at the end of 
of that novel when Humbert Humbert hears the voices of school children mm. at play and realizes what perhaps he has taken away from Lolita. But only moments before that, he's fantasized about even having a relationship with, with Lolita's child. Yeah. So that sort of simultaneous uh, understanding of the level of brutality is still distorted through this sort of abusive consciousness but i think i find i still find this somehow bleaker because it almost pulls everything from under your feet somehow that you're you're kind of left thinking like you know desperately want this this character of the girl to reject the narrator or to run off or something horrible to happen to him but yet through his own eyes at least he's ended up with this fairy tale ending and a and a world shaped by by violence and that's um, to know it's a very hard way to leave a book yeah is this something you would recommend to people yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really tough. And I think it deserves or even requires to be read more than once. I don't know, it works on, works on a lot of levels. And I didn't, I didn't think it was difficult to read at all. I did, as I said earlier, I did feel quite deflated when I finished it. <laughs> so I think you've got to be in the right route. Maybe you do have to read it in summer as well. In a strange way, as dark as this world was to inhabit, I almost wanted to stay there. You know, I went straight to read another Anna Kavan book and found myself in a very in a very different place. I mean, I'm sure having picked up a silent piece at another time, I would have been just as impressed by it. And, and I, I was aware that Anna Kavan's books are known to be very, very different from each other. But I, I suppose I was looking for something with this book's hallucinatory power yeah I was I was very taken with it so it's definitely something I recommend to people we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter and if you like the show please leave us a review on iTunes thank you for listening and we'll see you next time Sherd's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.